With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Herminia Ibarra, who's one of the, the people in range who studies how people kind of triangulate their match quality, has this phrase I love, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And what she means is there's like a huge industry of personality tests and, and, and gurus that kind of preach them and commencement speeches that tell you, introspect and decide who you're going to be and then go forth and be that. And in fact, what all the evidence shows is that you actually have to try stuff to learn about yourself and then reflect on it. And you know, this end of history illusion, this idea that we all underestimate how much we're going to change. We only learn about ourselves by doing things, reflecting on it, and then continually zigzagging and triangulating your match quality. And honestly, I think this really resonated with some of the things I thought you wrote, where, where you gave people the advice um, to sort of focus on what was in front of them, where they sometimes look like way ahead at some idealized goal and they're not looking at the step right in front of them and learning from it as they're sort of zigzagging their way there. Yeah, right. Like my view is it's almost nonsensical to have one-year, five-year, ten-year goals. You could have them with the understanding that it's only to be used to determine what you're going to do today. Because if I learn something new today, that could completely change my five-year goal. So I'm so excited to have this next guest on. I had taken a little break from, even though we always release two a week, two podcasts a week, I took a little break from recording these just so I could catch up on my reading. And I really wanted to read this book called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And I got so excited reading the book. Uh, I searched through my emails to see if I knew him. And it turned out <laughs> several people had tried to introduce me to him. And then I found out you were in town. So David Epstein, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I feel very lucky that that worked out. <laughs> no, it's great. And and this is an area I'm fascinated with, which is everyone always says, oh, it takes 10,000 hours, 10,000 hours, 10,000 hours to be like a, a master of something or to be a, a peak performer. And I just know through all my experiences and the hundreds of peak performers I've had on the podcast that just didn't. And I've even had Anders Ericsson, the, the creator of the 10,000 hour role on the podcast. And I've been talking with him recently about this. It just didn't feel right to me. And your book someone kind of gathered everything together why it, it why the 10,000 hour rule doesn't always work maybe maybe to start this off describe the story about Vincent Van Gogh that you talk about here because I thought that was such a great story oh so basically well I don't yeah I don't reveal that it's Vincent Van Gogh at first but I just tell the I story know, I'm of this. sorry I have, I have <laughs> no, a spoiler no, it was no. a great part way you wrote <laughs> this but no it's just talk tell the story of this young man who at first is actually quite a, a promising student 
Um, and so is sent away to uh, a, a fancy boarding school where he doesn't like being away from home that much and comes back and is sort of listless, doesn't really know what to do. He loves walking, loves looking at nature, isn't really sure what else to do. Um, uncle has started a very fancy art dealership. Um, and so it gives him a job as in, in an art store. Basically. And he had no artistic talent at this point either. No, in fact, his, his he had tried drawing as a kid. His, his his mother was into the arts and music and and he tried drawing as a kid and he would trace like with something under the paper. But then when he tried to draw freehand, he did it so poorly that he decided just to quit and never do it again. He tried to draw the family cat basically and decided never to draw again. So, so what does that indicate to you? Does that indicate lack of interest, lack of talent, lack of skill? It's a good question. I mean, if you look at his early drawings, you would not identify him as someone who was going to become that good. So I, I certainly don't think, you know, one of the things I've written about before is this very wide range of responsiveness to certain types of training, which is sort of one of the problems I've had with the 10,000 hour rule, because it's, it shows up in every study that two people doing the same exact training often become more different, not more the same. They get different results from the exact same training. And so you wouldn't have picked him as someone who was going to go on and do that. So I think there was a lack of uh, baseline talent, but maybe an ability to respond to certain types of training. But also I think he just had a kind of also crippling perfectionism about it in some ways early on. So he sort of looked at this drawing. He said, oh, I suck. I'm, it's not worth getting, even though everyone's going to be bad at their first attempt at anything, he just couldn't handle it. Pretty much. And he had, he had other stuff that he was really into. So it wasn't like, he, you know, he was trying to fill his time. He was super into to collecting like bugs and birds. And he could walk for like hours and just watch, you know, water bugs for three hours doing their commute across streams. And he would collect birds' nests. So he had plenty of stuff to do. So it wasn't like he was lacking for things. So it was no problem. Like, you know, I suck at this. Okay, I'm gonna go do something else. And and then what happened? So and then so when he comes back and he goes and works in an art dealership and he and he and he loves it at first because it's it's just like collecting. So he'd been collecting all these things and now he starts collecting prints and and collage was this becoming this very important form. And so people would come in, he'd say like help them with their collage books and all these things. And he writes his parents and says, you know, I'll never need another job again and all this sort of stuff. But slowly things, you know, by, by the time he's 20, he's, he's getting sent abroad to meet like really important customers. Um, but then he slowly starts to have sort of conflicts. He doesn't really like bargaining with customers. Um, he feels like it's sort of taken advantage of them and he starts to develop sort of strong opinions and his boss is kind of like, sell them stuff. Like don't, you know, don't have opinions that are contrary to them. And, his, and he, he, was, he was a country kid. And his boss was this urbane guy, and they didn't get along that well. And so eventually he gets sent out um, to work where he doesn't really have to interact with customers. He's this incredibly hard worker. Like everywhere he goes, people admire his, his work ethic. He's there before them. Uh, he's, he's, he's there after them. And so sometimes, you know, people, they, they get there after Vincent. They leave before Vincent. Um, and eventually he just sort of keeps deteriorating uh, his sort of relationships with his boss. And so he has to, he, he leaves that career, basically. Um, he goes back home, goes, goes through a series of other jobs. He's uh, a teacher. And each time he has another job, he thinks that's the last job because he works so hard. And he says, I found my thing. I'm going to hit it hard. You know, he has his 10,000 hours mindset and he'll tell his parents, like, I've found it. I'm good. And he ends up leaving. Like something doesn't so, go So right. he is passionate about it. He doesn't do anything that he's not passionate about. Oh, he's, he's, he has so much passion. Like when he dives into teaching, that's his passion. And he does tutoring and um, then he decides he wants to become uh, a, a, oh, he's a bookseller for a little while and he loves reading, absolutely adores reading. So he loves that because he can be in the store and he can read. And again, his coworkers marvel at his endurance where the, the bookstore flooded one time and 
they all sort of tire out and he's going back and forth like saving books from the floodwaters and they like left these notes about how amazing his endurance was. But again, he sort of um, doesn't get along with the customers always that well and kind of like flames out on it even though he thinks it's his calling and he decides to follow his father's footsteps into the clergy, right? And so he first has to get, now he has to go back and finish university education so he can train to be a clergyman. So he gets a tutor and once again, he he has a hat that he like, wax seals candles onto so he can read and study all night. Um, and his landlord would find him awake at night. And he said, finally, I found my calling. He starts copying the text of entire uh, textbooks over. And it turns out that like Greek and Latin don't come very easily to him. And it is, one of his uncles who's a war hero just keeps telling him, just push on, push on. And so he tries, but again, he, he, he's not doing well. And so he sort of flames out in that, but he still wants to be religious. Uh, you know, he still wants to spread the word. So he joins a shorter program where you don't have to go to university, but you're you're oriented toward sermonizing, basically giving talks. And it turns out that he's not good at concision in those talks. Like he he likes to sort of talk at length. So he he fails out of that program as well. And he says, fine, nobody can stop me from spreading the word. So he decides to become like an itinerant catechist, goes to the most downtrodden um, area uh, called, called the Borinage, this, this, this area um, in Europe where it's, it's coal country, essentially. And it's so, the working conditions are so bad that the workers refer to earth level above the mines as up in hell. Um, and he gets there right after this incredible disaster that like basically blows to bits like 120 miners. And so there's, there's incredible work to do in consoling people. And this is, this is where he's good. He's so passionate and he gives them all of his clothes. He gives them all of his money and possessions and dotes on the ill and injured day and night. And then he's great. But when things get sort of back to normal and he has to kind of run a ministry, he's awkward. Mm. And he's not that good at giving those sermons. And, his, and the kids think he's kind of weird and these sorts of things. So that gets closed also. He makes one more try in, in sort of a swamp to be a preacher. And that doesn't work out either. And with nothing else, when, he, when he's in the Borinage and seeing these, these uh, coal miners, he, he thinks back to his art selling days and says, gosh, you know, if Rembrandt had seen like these blackened skies here, he really could have done something with this. Too bad like there's nobody here to draw the life out here because uh, if there were an artist here, they'd really be able to do something. And so having flamed out in five different careers and having no possessions and in this coal country, he doesn't know what to do and he just starts drawing the people around him. And, and he starts to like that. And he picks up at the age of 27 a book called The Guide to the ABCs of Drawing and starts learning how to draw or trying to draw, but he is not that good at drawing figures, at drawing proportions, but he likes it. And he starts writing letters to his brother and say like, send me some supplies and all these sorts of things. And this, this starts his sort of artistic career and he tries to get some formal training. Um, but when he goes to an art academy at, at about the age of 33, he finishes last in a class competition and is recommended to revert to a class with 10 year olds um, because he's not that good at sort of realistic drawing flames out and everything he does. Actually, if you go to his Wikipedia page, Anton Mauve is listed as his education, who was one of his cousins by marriage. He spent three weeks with Mauve trying to learn watercolors and, and he couldn't control them that well and so quit. So his education listed on Wikipedia is a guy he spent three weeks with, basically. Finally, he decides, you know, he, he keeps sort of experimenting. He, I'm giving you the long version here, obviously. Um, just as he did between jobs where he dives in and says, this is the way to do it. This is the passion. This is the final thing for me. He does that with the artistic experimentation. He says, drawing humans, drawing figures is the only thing an artist should do. That everything else is nonsense. And then he tries to do it and he's not that good at it. And he says, drawing figures is nonsense. 
artists should only try to draw nature. That's where you, you know, you really capture uh, something. And then maybe if he's not that good at that, he goes to something else. He says, there are no such thing as color. There's only shades of black and white. I will use no colors, only black. And he does this painting, the potato eaters, that's like so dark you can barely see it. And later on, he decides, never mind that. There's not even black in the night sky. It's only shades of blue and purple. And he, he bounces between all these experiments. And one day, he decides to drag some oil paints where he, he's never used before out to a beach in a storm and, and an easel. And he has to run in and out of cover because he's getting sandblasted like with the storm. And he has to slap the oil paint on really quickly. And, and his oil paint is all gloopy. And so he's, he, he's suddenly free of this crippling perfectionism because he has to go whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And, and he looks at that painting when it's done and writes to Theo, his brother, and says, painting has proven easier than I expected the first time. And this, this painting is actually one that was stolen and then recovered a, a decade later. And the painting's amazing. And he, he starts to go with that kind of impetuous style where he's not slowing down as much. Now, if you even look at his canvases closely, you can see canvas between the strokes because he's going so fast. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that that kind of freed him from that, that crippling perfectionism he had. And he merged all these kind of experiments that he had, he had dived in and out of into this totally unique style. And everything we know of him, he does in basically the last two years of his life. If, if he had died, he died at 37. If he had died at 34, he would maybe be a historical footnote. And so, yeah, I, that's, the, that's the really wrong, long version, but you seem still interested in it. So yeah, so, so, so that one, so there's a lot of points from your book that that covers. One is, is that um, having passions in a variety of areas could lend themselves to being, you know, really a genius at some intersection of these passions your, or maybe in a new passion, which kind of draws from different elements. Like clearly um, his paintings have almost this religious style intensity and he, or he, he had, he had a lot of experience of looking at a variety of painting styles when he was working for an, an art dealership uh, I don't know what the book selling contributed to him, but well, he he continued to be a voracious reader, and in a lot of his paintings, you'll see like Zola novels open, um, mm-hmm. and so he he would sometimes take themes from Zola when he decided from Emil Zola when he decided what to paint. So it sort of contributed to some of his inspiration. Mm-hmm. So so, uh, and then I want to compare that story to some of the classic um, areas uh, where the ten thousand hour rule does apply. So so we'll, whole. Put put uh, thumbtack in that one for a second, and then let's take something like uh, vi- the violin or chess, where like Anders Ericsson famously does this study of a group of uh, violinists, where the ones who studied for you know ten thousand hours became the best violinists in the world. The ones who studied eight thousand hours were a little bit below them, and the ones who studied five thousand hours became like you know teachers of violin rather than performers of violin. And so that was kind of this classic 10,000 hour rule scenario or chess. Uh, you mentioned the Polgar sisters in the book. Uh, that was like almost like this weird experiment on this guy's children, Lazo Polgar, uh, basically from birth on just taught his kids, uh, chess, just like Tiger Woods, dad just taught him golf and everything else was sort of to the side. They got their 10,000 hours really quickly at an age when the brain was forming. So, uh, boom, they became kind of the, the some of the best chess players in history and certainly the best uh, three best women in history. And uh, what's the, what, what do you see as the difference between chess and art? I know they're very different, but like, where, where do, how do you see that 
you could be a peak performer in one that requires the 10,000 hours and this other one doesn't require the 10,000 hours. Yeah, so I think they're, they're, the way I kind of write about that in range is they're in different places on this spectrum of what the psychologist Robin Hogarth calls the, the kind versus wicked learning environments, basically. And, and a kind learning environment is an area where there's lots of information available, um, uh, particularly information about previous attempts, there are rigid rules. All pertinent information is available. Patterns repeat. Um, people often take turns. Next steps are what you're trying to goals are clear. Uh, and you get feedback after attempts that is immediate and, and perfectly accurate. And, the other, and so that is something like golf, right, where it, it's almost like people who study skill acquisition almost classify it as like an industrial task where you're trying to do the same thing over and over with as little deviation as possible. Right, and you could, you could say there's like, uh, a finite number of what I call micro skills in golf. So uh, there's putting, there's that first drive, there's whatever. I don't even, I don't play golf, but let's just take putting. You know, you can do, you can practice the same thing over and over again. And if you have, if you do what Anders calls deliberate practice, where uh, you, you putt, it doesn't make it. A teacher tells you what you did wrong. Now you practice again. You don't make it. A teacher tells you what you did wrong, and you keep adjusting and mm -hmm. adjusting. And you do that for ten thousand hours, you'll be the best putter in the world and mm -hmm. among the best golfers in the world. Yeah, and so and and even other domains like like chess are sort of on the kinder end of the spectrum because they're based on pattern recognition, right? Like one of the things that that specialists are great at is is recognizing previous patterns. And it's also one of the reasons why why computers are really good at chess because they're they're good in domains where there are a lot of patterns. On on the other end of the spectrum are the wicked learning environments where. Some information isn't clear. Next steps may not be clear. Goals may be more amorphous. Feedback may or may is usually not automatic, and if it is, it might be delayed, and it may be partially inaccurate. So one of the examples Hogarth uses that I love is this New York City physician who got really famous because time and again he could predict that a patient was going to get typhoid before they showed any symptoms, and he would do it by palpating their tongue, you know, feeling around their tongue with his hands, and over and over before they showed a single symptom, he predicts this and becomes very famous for that. And as one of his colleagues later said, he was a more productive carrier of typhoid than even typhoid Mary using only his hands. So what he was, he was the one transferring the typhoid, but kept getting it right. And so this, this feedback reinforced the exact wrong lesson, right? And so that's, that's the epitome of a wicked learning environment. Most of us aren't there either, but we're somewhere, somewhere between those poles. And the more you're on the kind end, the more the 10,000 hours makes sense. And the more you're on the wicked end, the less it makes sense. It's basically. funny though how like, let's take violin, chess, uh, maybe math, golf, uh, all these, all these areas that are probably on the kind end, people do associate with, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, maybe, maybe music is there. People associate with these like, uh, kind of glamorous stories of prodigies mm -hmm. and in intelligence. And, you know, like the better you are at chess, it's assumed the more intelligent you are. Uh, if you're great at music at the age of nine, like Mozart was, it's assumed he was this brilliant prodigy. Like it's an amazing thing. Uh, same with, with math or violin or whatever. Uh, and Tiger Woods was considered a prodigy of golf. Whereas these other things, the, the less, the wicked domains, Vincent van Gogh obviously wasn't a prodigy of art. In fact, he gave up. But the other thing that's different though about art, let's say as opposed to chess, chess, there's rules and you either win or lose. There's a one or a zero. Whereas art, there's no such thing as winning or losing. In fact, what Van Gogh did was he kind of almost created a new form of art. Like art, many of these wicked domains, the domain itself changes as a result of a new peak performer. Like Picasso with cubism, he changed art. He didn't, he didn't become great necessarily at 
the old school, he created yeah. his new school. No, that's a great point. I mean, what Van Gogh did changed what artists do, as did Picasso, right? He was a, a bridge between eras, basically. And and that's that's not the same kind of goal as golf. And, and it, it resonates with me a lot to you say it that way because before this, I wrote a book called The Sports Gene about genetics and athleticism and was invited to a lot of um, conferences that I didn't really know existed uh, to and asked to essentially extrapolate from sports to any other challenges that people faced in the world, whatever business challenge or personal challenge it was. And there are lessons you can learn from sports for other areas, but sports is very constrained and totally zero-sum, and most of the things that we care about aren't that way. They're not zero-sum. They're not based on repetitive patterns and sort of choreographed skills and things like that. So I started to feel you know, a little self-conscious about whether I should do it or not because I think we've made a lot of inappropriate extrapolations from these, these zero-sum environments um, you know, where you have to have a winner and where you have these really constrained rules to areas where that's not at all the case. Yeah, you figure there's a lot of areas in life that people want to be the best in the world at, or let's say in the top 1%, like let's say, for instance, investing. But investing's an area where, again, the one and the zero is a little blurrier. There, yes, you could make money or lose money, but that doesn't necessarily tell you whether you did well or not. Like, you know, you have to make money... You know, you know, sometimes you can make a lot of money. Sometimes you can make a little money. Sometimes a bad decision will make you a lot of money. Mm -hmm. You know, as uh, you've probably read uh, Annie Duke's uh, Thinking in Bets. Mm -hmm. So where she says sometimes uh, a decision that where the outcome is mostly bad could actually be a good yeah. decision if you keep doing it and the final outcome is very good. So so some of these uh, areas are a little more, you, you know, or some of these areas where we want to be good at are all wicked domains as opposed to, you know, these very specific domains like chess or violin or some of these very narrow yeah. uh, things that have a very specific either one or zero outcome. That's right. And so th this, is, this is kind of the core of a debate between two of the most famous scholars of expertise, uh, Gary Klein and Daniel Kahneman. Um, and what they were noticing was that as they were studying experienced performers— Klein's results were showing, wow, people really get a lot better with practice and with repetition of the same thing over and over and over. And what Kahneman's research was showing something very different that, wow, people get a lot more confident but not any better with, with experience. And so they came together to do this amazing paper, I think, in terms of conceptually that they called an adversarial collaboration. They got together and said, why are we seeing such different results if we're kind of approaching the same things. And it turned out that it was domain dependent, right? The domains that Klein was studying were these domains where there were very repetitive patterns. So he would look at, you know, firefighters who who worked on house fires only. But then if they ended up in a larger building, they were actually stripped of that expertise and could make very bad decisions as but, long as they stayed in the same domain. But what if they were firefighters that their domain was all sorts of buildings. Would they still need the 10,000 hours to be an overall good firefighter? That, that, that's, a, that's a great question because one of the, I mentioned sort of a classic research finding in range that, that is summarized as breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. And, and this is sort of one of my critiques of some kind of 10,000 hour thinking. What, what that means, transfer is what psychologists say, meaning the ability to take your skills and knowledge and use it in situations you've never seen before, which is ultimately what you want to do if you're in a less predictable environment. Um, and, and the broadness of the challenges that you face early in training helps you build these sort of conceptual models and general skills that allow you to do transfer. So, so one of the examples um, you know, I use in the book is people being trained on naval to respond, how to respond to like naval threats. 
And there's one group that's trained on a certain type of threat over and over and over, then the next type over and over and over, then the next type over and over and over, and another group that never sees the same scenario twice. And group two is totally frustrated, and they don't feel like they learned anything. And then when they bring them back much later and show them all new scenarios, group two destroys group one. Hmm. So even though they're not even seeing scenarios they've ever seen before, it's like th that, that kind of training, broad training, forces you, instead of learning how to execute procedures, how to match strategies to problems. And that's what you want. So I think, I don't know that anybody's done this, but one of the ways that wilderness firefighters, I have a chapter late in the book talks about wilderness firefighters and, and some of the problems they face when they face unexpected challenges. Some of the updates to their training have been varying the, the training environments, actually. It, it's hard. To, it, this is kind of new, so it's hard to know if that's really worked. But, but I wonder if this is covered by uh, just playing devil's advocate. I wonder if this is covered by Anders Ericsson's deliberate practice where, you know, the mentor kind of creates the environments, you know, so that you practice in all these different environments and you you get feedback from a teacher and, and you do over and over again. And you even discuss interleaving of different environments for one domain to kind of get overall mm -hmm. better. Uh, so I wonder if this is a little covered by that and we're still under the 10,000 hour rule. I think it is a little covered in that in the sense that in my opinion, everything is covered by deliberate practice at this point because the definition has become so amorphous. Mm -hmm. So the best I can tell, in the original definition, if you look at the original paper, it says doing the same thing or something similar repeatedly. But now it seems to me the definition has become that which in retrospect did cause someone to improve. And if that's the definition, then you've left the science realm, and that's not really a hypothesis. So when I've talked to Anders about this, and I, and I say, you know, here, look at this, look at this study of people who are trained in the exact same way and have these incredible variability of responses and get more different. He says, well, they're not elite, so you can't, can't talk about them. And then when you, but I'm saying, first of all, if you can't start with square zero, you don't have a comprehensive model of skill development, period. So if you can only start with people who are a finished product and look backward, and then you look at those people, and even in the 10,000 hour study, he didn't include measures of variance in that study, right? So I invited him to a conference and asked him about it. And, he, and his first answer was, well, that doesn't really matter because the subjects were inconsistent in multiple accounts of their practice hours. So, so let me just understand that. So let's take the violin example. Uh, w again, he, 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 was just start, he was just studying violinists that were already in like violin academy or right. whatever Highly it was. Highly pre-selected. Serious so, restriction of range problem there. And, and, and I think you mentioned an example in here where there was someone who started playing the violin at 18 and became an elite player. So what was, yeah. what was different there? What was happening? I mean, that, that wasn't someone who studied. That's just someone whose sort of story I know. But, but in, in the people that Anders picked, um, so they were pre-selected. They were already in a world-famous music academy. And by the way, some of them did not reach 10,000 hours. There was high variance that, that he didn't report, but he told me that it's at least 500 hours. So some people went over and some people went under, and 10,000 was just an average. So like we talked about the chess master and, and, and scholar, Fernand Gobet, before. Yeah. And one of his studies that looks at you know, people en route to international master status in chess, some people make it in 3,000 hours. Some were at 25,000 in the study and didn't make it. So you could have, you could, if you averaged it, there was 11,053 hours on average to reach international master status. But an 11,053 hour rule doesn't tell you anything about the real breadth of human variation that runs from 3,000 to we don't even know where yet because some people stopped at 25,000. Is that, is that uh, where talent um, plays a role? I think, yes, mm -hmm. I think it does. Um, talent plays a role, and also the right kind of training, which I guess you can call deliberate practice if anything that works qualifies as deliberate practice. But that to me means that it's like not that, not that useful anymore. And, and I think there's a lot of evidence that instead of just starting on your 10,000 hours, it's, it's really important to try to maximize your match quality, where that's the, the term economists use for the degree of fit between your abilities and your interests and what you do. Um, and very important for your motivation, for your 
your apparent grit for for your performance, and you get more bang for your effort if you work on maximizing your match quality. Um, so describe describe match quality. So match quality is just it's just this fit between who you are and what you do, basically, um, and and your interests and abilities and and what it is that you end up doing. Um, but and, like Van Gogh thought he had match quality in like five different right. domains. That's right. And then stumbled into this sixth domain yeah. almost by chance. Yeah. And that was his real match quality. So it's 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 not like sort of that also isn't an area where it's it's measurable. Like I can that's right to do a blood test and find out what what area I'm gonna qualify the most at. No, that's a great point. In fact, Herminia Ibarra, who's one of the the people in range who studies how people kind of triangulate their match quality has this phrase I love, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And what she means is there's like a huge industry of personality tests and 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 gurus that kind of preach them and commencement speeches that tell you introspect and and decide who you're going to be and then and then go forth um, and be that. And in fact, what all the evidence shows is that you actually have to try stuff to learn about yourself and then reflect on it. Um, and and, and you know this end of history illusion, this idea that we all underestimate how much we're going to change. We only learn about ourselves by doing things, reflecting on it, and then continually zigzagging and triangulating your match quality. And honestly, I think this really resonated with some of the things I thought you wrote where, where you gave people the advice um, to sort of focus on what was in front of them, where they sometimes look like way ahead at some idealized goal and they're not looking at the step right in front of them and learning from it as they're sort of zigzagging their way there. Yeah, right. Like my my view is... It's it's almost nonsensical to have one year, five year, ten year goals. You could have them with the understanding that it's only to be used to determine what you're going to do today. Because if I learn something new today, that can completely change my five year goal. Like if I learn something about, let's say, I'm trying to get good at investing, but I learn something today about investing that is X versus what I thought I was going to learn, because I because by definition I don't know what I'm going to know tomorrow. Uh, where I think I'm going to be in five years can completely change. I mean, you'd be like an ideal subject in the Dark Horse project that's in there, right? This this study at Harvard that finds studies how people find careers that where they feel fulfilled, and it's called the Dark Horse project because it wasn't called that originally. Because the the people that come in um, from all these, you know, some are investors, piano tuners, midwives. Some are wealthy, some are not. Because fulfillment was more the the uh, the, the dependent variable there, um, and they all come in and say, "Well, don't do what I did because." Um, you know, I did all this other stuff first and I didn't find it until later and I zigzagged and I thought I was going to be this and I ended up as that. So don't tell anybody to do what I did. So they, they all view themselves as coming from, you know, coming out of nowhere, like a dark horse. But their common trait is this kind of short-term planning where instead of looking around and say, this person's got more than me and is younger than me and setting these long goals, they say, here's who I am today. Here are my skills. Here are my interests. Here are the opportunities right in front of me. This seems like the best one to try. My hypothesis about what I'll learn and accomplish is this. And then maybe a year from now I'll change because I will have learned something about myself. They don't go, they don't jump ahead, do that thing that, you know, Paul Graham called premature optimization, basically setting the goal before you know anything. So, I, I mean, I think basically you intuitively um, <laughs> came to the conclusions that, that those researchers came to through, through other means. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, 
and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. 
The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Well, and then here's the other thing. This was my original question for Anders more recently when we exchanged some some emails. And, and you just addressed it with the talent or the skill transference. Uh, you know, like for instance, I've done a lot of public speaking and I've done a lot of writing. So I've done, you can argue I've put in 10,000 hours worth of communicating and even communicating humorously. Cause I have my talks are, are people laugh and my writing people laugh, but I started doing stand up comedy and I was really curious how much I can pull from those 10,000 hours into this completely new area and how far an area has to be before the, those hours of skill are, not, are no longer useful. And your, your argument a little bit is that they're always useful to some extent. Like Van Gogh takes from book selling and he becomes a great painter. And it's, it, it seems like the more wicked the domain, the further out in domains you can go to be a peak performer in the domain you really want to uh, establish peak performance in. I, I think that's right. I think that's generally a, a good rubric. And, and like Maria is a great example. Maria, so our yeah. mutual friend Maria Konnikova, who's yeah. taken a year and she was already like a poker champion. Uh, uh, she didn't even know like how many cards were in a deck, I don't think. Like yeah, she didn't know the rules months of poker ago. at all. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but we talked about this. She was able to borrow from, you know, all her studying of Sherlock Holmes and con men, you know, doing a PhD yeah. on this stuff. Her, her ability to um, observe people, she was able to take some of those 10,000 hours and move them into the poker domain. I mean, in, in some ways, she's like the least surprising human on earth to become a pro poker player quickly, right? Like if, for someone who knows her. But that's, I mean, there's a good analogy from that in sports. Like in, in the Australian Institute of Sports studied athletes that have done multiple invasion sports when they're younger. Those are the ones that are happening in real time where you're like trying to get by people. And they require these skills of anticipating things before they happen because it's actually occurring too fast for you to react to. And so like, what's an example sport like that? Oh, like basketball, volleyball, tennis, soccer, soccer yeah, um, football. Um, and the the athletes who had done more of those when they were younger, then their threshold for how many hours they needed to become elite in any subsequent one was lowered by a lot. So they would start making national teams at three thousand hours and things like that if they had this broad base early on. So it seems to like, you know, build some scaffolding for for learning these later skills more quickly. And I would say Maria had a pretty good scaffolding for becoming a pro poker player. But at the same time, like you, you mentioned, um, Roger uh, Federer, the the tennis player, 
What, and and how he started late in life, and he done a bunch of racket sports, which it sort of is like what you're just saying now. He did a bunch of racket sports. He done a bunch done of a, sports. Period. Done, done yeah. a bunch of sports. But wouldn't you say that ten thousand hours of deliberate practice helps in tennis? Where okay, now we're going to practice all day the serve, and okay, the teachers can say no, adjust this way, adjust that way. Now we're going to uh, do the backhand, now the forehand. And wouldn't you say the ten thousand hours, and if you start really young, it builds the right you know, myelin sheaths in your brain and, and everything to make a great tennis player? That is what I would have said until I sort of started investigating it more deeply. Um, and yes to some of that, but the reason I was looking into this was kind of because I was the science writer at Sports Illustrated and I saw, you know, youth specialization proceeding in sports and des- and decided to say, you know, let's look at what science says about optimal development and and you see this almost in almost every sport or in, in certainly in all the, the more dynamic sports that the athletes who go on to become elite have this so-called sampling period where they play a variety of sports, they get this broad array of general skills, they learn about their interests and abilities and systematically delay specializing until later than their peers. And when I saw that, I said, okay, well, that's probably just because they're more talented so they can play a bunch of sports before they specialize. So then I moved to the next level and started finding these studies where researchers would match athletes for ability at a certain age, track them for several years, and see who improved more. And in a certain age range, it was the kids who did did more other sports and less of the sport they were targeting. So I do think there's a point where you have to focus, but I think it's pretty clear that this unstructured non-feedback, right? So, so France, which just won the World Cup, overhauled their development system some years ago to not let coaches talk most of the time when kids are playing. A French kid who's good at soccer plays about half as many formal games as an American kid. And the saying that they use in their development is there's no remote control. The coach should not try to micromanage them and give them that feedback all the time because you want to start first playing in this unstructured manner. Similarly with the, the national team members that won the previous World Cup to that in Germany, not until they were 22 years old did they start um, doing more structured play than than amateur level players, amateur level players. But they had a bigger background of this unstructured play. So again, if you want to fit unstructured play into deliberate practice, then like anything fits. But I, I certainly don't think it fits the original definition. And let's let's you know you don't talk that much about music in the book, but let let's say uh, any form of modern music. It seems like that's a very wicked domain. Yeah. And, and it's similar to art in the sense that every decade music means something different than the de- decade before. Like there's new forms of music that develop. So just because you were good at the old form or practice over, it doesn't, doesn't have anything to do with the training that makes you, like let's say someone uh, was a really great musician in the 1970s. They started young, they, they learned the piano or the violin or whatever. It doesn't necessarily make them automatically going to be good as a hip hop you know, rapper in the 80s. So again, that seems like, you know, this is a creative area that makes a lot of money and creates a lot of success, but that the 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 domain, the meaning of the domain changes constantly. I, I agree, and and I should preface this since I'm I'm being critical that I like Anders a lot. Um, so oh yeah, that, no, hopefully that goes I without like saying. him a lot too. And I oh, okay. I actually think I think what I'm sort of driving at is that in some cases that some domains require wicked abilities in some cases they require kind of abilities. like let's say let's just take rap as an example sometimes maybe you need ten thousand hours of singing and now we're going to take in the rules of rap which we just learned a day ago and combine them and that might recreate this whole new form right right you're doing something new right so there isn't that like coach telling you exactly what to do because you're trying to do something somebody else hasn't done it's a wicked problem and and i think it's sort of telling that the Cambridge Handbook of Expertise, which is like the Bible for the 10,000 hour school, has a, and it's, you know, it's like this, it's like 1,000 pages long with like giant pages and tiny type. And it has a full chapter on music. 
and it's all classical music. Then there's like two sentences that that has a couple citations and says, and in all the other forms of music, uh, there's actually sampling early and they specialize later. And it's just like a write-off. I'm like, how can you? So so they're only looking at like the most kind environment where it's not really creative work; it's recreative work that they're doing. And so so I think that's kind of telling and important. Well, it, uh, one time we had on the podcast two guests in a row the same day. Uh, one was a guy who was a humor writer. He writes jokes for shows, but he doesn't perform. He's just, all he's been doing is writing jokes and he's, they're great and he's mm-hmm. well known for it. And then later on we had uh, a well-known stand-up comedian. And so the joke writer said he was like right away able to, he started late in life, like his college years, but he was right away funny and able to, a, a, he doesn't even think he's improved at all since day one. Hmm. Now he probably had a lot of interests along the way. Mm-hmm, he was a very mm-hmm. smart guy. He was going to like the the best schools, um, but he he said it didn't require him any time at all to sort of find his voice. The stand-up comedian, on the other hand, said she took uh, at least eight or nine years before she was she even considered that she was just beginning. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if this is a combination of uh, both wicked and kind. So the 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 wicked part is uh maybe having being humorous and the kind part that requires 10,000 hours is maybe uh stage time and be seeing maybe thousands of different types of audiences and kind of cataloging them in your brain and seeing how they react to different things i don't know i'm just i'm just kind of no, no, playing I mean, around no i've started to since since reading that work about kind and wicked learning environments i've started to sort of analyze the world in that way like which parts of this endeavor are the kind parts where i can kind of have this built-in feedback and sort of repetitive challenges where it does make sense to maybe follow that kind of more deliberate practice model and which are the parts where that doesn't really make sense because it's varied and, and I have to do something new and the, and the perfect way to do it isn't even clear at all. And so I, I think breaking down um, those domains, what you're doing I think is very much what Gary Klein and Daniel Kahneman were doing, which is saying like, well, why is this approach working here and, and totally backfiring here? And so I think that's an exactly right way to look. I mean, I, I agree with you. And so I wonder then, like, take, if you really, let's say, let's say, so I'm over 50, I want to be, let's say, a great musician, maybe it kind of, or let's say anybody says, I want to be a great entrepreneur, I want to be a great salesperson, I want to be a great investor. So anybody starting later in life that says to themselves, well, I can't put in the 10,000 hours to be a master of something, maybe the challenge is, okay, what are the areas in my life that I've gotten pretty good at in the past how can I combine them? Like, what does the intersection look like? Even if I can't define it exactly, I could define it roughly. And then here's the domain I really want to be a peak performer in. What new thing, what new domain can I birth out of the domain that I really want to be good at? So so then I could be the best at this new thing I've created that's very, so ancillary to the domain I want to be good at that it seems like the same. Yeah, that's sort of like skill stacking concept, right? You're yeah. not you're not the best at anything, but if you can kind of create your own turf to compete on. And that that one that just resonates with me very much personally because it turned out that the most valuable thing for me to become a senior writer at Sports Illustrated was having gone to grad school in geology, right? Which I could not have picked out first, but I took something where I was a quite ordinary scientist, but an extraordinary scientist for a sports publication, right? And so it was the combination of those things that just like shot me past all the other people who were sort of working up one step at a time. And, and one of my favorite examples is, is, is a guy in Rangers, Gunpei Yokoi, Japanese man who didn't score well in his electronics exam. So he had to take kind of a low-tier job with a playing card company as a machine maintenance worker. Realize, re, totally realized he wasn't equipped to work on the cutting edge. 
um, which is why he had to go to this company in Kyoto while all his friends went to Tokyo. But that there was so much information now available that, that everyone was skipping over that if he just looked more broadly, he could just combine all this old cheap stuff into new things that nobody had seen. And he did that and started a toy and game operation at that playing card company called Nintendo. Um, and then he combined a whole bunch of old technologies to make the Game Boy, which was the best-selling video game console of the 20th century. And his philosophy that he called lateral thinking with withered technology, withered technology, he meant stuff that's already under, well understood. So you don't have to worry about the specialists and lateral thinking, just bringing things together that aren't usually together. That became the core philosophy of Nintendo, basically. And I think he's representative of this, this trend, this research I mentioned, like in technological patents where the creators who make the biggest impact are the ones, not the ones who've drilled the deepest, who are useful, totally essential for certain problems, but the ones who have spread their work across the largest number of technological domains as classified by the U.S. Patent Office. And, and in that research, that trend has really basically accelerated since like the early 90s. So I don't think it was always like this. I think before that, it made more sense to, to be more narrow. And, and I think, well, I don't think I'm taking the idea from the researcher, um, that communication technology, as we can disseminate specialist information so rapidly and so thoroughly, there's many more opportunities for people to do that kind of lateral thinking, combine things that specialists can't see than there are just to kind of push the cutting edge forward. Right, so just to summarize that research, that was the research which basically said, um, if you, it measured which scientific achievements had the longest lasting kind of impact on either society or the field or whatever. And it looked like early on the people who specialized the most, meaning um, their cita- all, the, all the work they cited was still within their same domain. It looked like those were the ones that were accomplishing the most. But then if you look out over years, it was the, the scientists who cited as many references or many sources as possible from completely different domains that those were the long-lasting accomplishments. Like, do you know, do right. you know an example? Like, that was the overall research, but is there a, a great right. example? Right, a- a- atypical combinations of, of knowledge, those were called. And I mean, so some of, some of the examples were like um, uh, that um, we learned basically a lot about how genes work from someone who was working on why certain flowers, when, when you make hybrids of certain white flowers, like why they turn out purple. And they were basically just combining things about inheritance with things about plant physiology that were very unusual. Had no idea that they were doing this, but it, it basically like revolutionized, you know, our understanding of genetics. And and it was one of those papers where um, you had these these two divergent domains where there was information that had never appeared together before uh, came together. And and those are the kind of papers you're talking about where if you look one in two years, those papers are actually very low impact and and. Um, end up in low impact journals usually. Like is that because that like people think, oh, this is weird. I don't want to look at it because you know at that point it's very uh, personality politics. You know which papers yeah. get accepted to which conferences and so on. Yeah, I mean, so interdisciplinary research and, and and research that has atypical combinations of knowledge, which means it has like sources that have never appeared together in a reference, are systematically docked both in proposals and in when they're evaluated by re- reviewers. Um, and as you might imagine, they are docked in ways that depend on those reviewers' expertise, right? They say, like, why this other thing? But once you zoom out to the 15-year window, those are the papers that actually become have a much higher chance of becoming the smash hits. I mean, most papers, no matter what, don't become smash hits. But that's those, those ones have a much, much higher chance. But you have to extend that window. And I think that's partly because... Um, they're systematically disadvantaged, which is unfortunate. And even 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 in spite of that, they end up rising to the top. Hmm. And and well, in your example is a great case study because so again, you were you had this background in geology, which has probably zero intersection with sports. 
Like there is nothing in common between geology Except and sports. Except for the rocks for jocks like class, right? That's like the intersection. <laughs> right. And and then there's sports. And then it's like, then, then there's this uh, big domain sports writing, but you kind of created your own little mini domain ancillary to sports writing, which is kind of scientific sports writing. Yeah. So I, there was nobody like you. So you were able, you were able to become the best at this domain that fell under sports writing and you were able to rise up uh, to the top in this sort of ancillary topic under the same umbrella. Totally. I mean, it would not have happened if I were just competing on the same ground that everyone else was competing on. It was really this. I mean, I, I went into Sports Illustrated as a temp fact checker and became the youngest senior writer and it had like everything to do with just having turf that no one else was competing with me on, right? By just like bringing together these skills of mine that that if I were, they were placed in isolation against the people who were the best at them were somewhat ordinary, but in combination were unique. Well, you know, and here's like, I think of two other sports writers. One's been on the podcast, the other one um, a fan of, but um, Josh Foer, uh, mm-hmm. I forget if he, his background was as a sports writer or not. But, and then Stephen Fatsis, who wrote uh, the book Word Freak. Yeah, yeah. So what's what's in common with both of them is that they, instead of just, Josh, instead of just writing about the U.S. memory championships and Stephen Fatsis, instead of just writing about the Scrabble world, they went in and Josh became the U.S. memory yeah. champion after training yeah. heavily. Stephen trained heavily in Scrabble. I don't think he became the U.S. Scrabble champion. He became a high-ranked Scrabble tournament player. So I think that by sort of doing this experiential um, type of writing, that also is is its own domain within sports writing. Like nobody can say, like you're not going to say, okay, I'm going to write about basketball, but only after I play with the NBA for a while. Like you're not going to do that. So you can't participate in that type of sports writing if you're going to write about basketball. But they picked areas where they were able to experience it, and that became this unique area of sports writing, which is I'm going to do it and then write about it. Yeah, no, totally. But I mean, most of what you see being in that industry is people who um, have a vision of someone else who they really liked as a writer, which is great, which is great. And you've written about this, right? You can have, you can, whether you know the person or not, they can be a role model for you. Um, but maybe it's a mistake to try to be exactly what they are, right? And this is it, one of the guys I loved in, in the last chapter of range Oliver Smithies, who I interviewed shortly before he he passed away, and the advice that he would give his students, who was just a wonderful guy, by the way, he was a Nobel laureate who, who he himself started as a medical student, saw a lecture in chemistry, and was like, "That's awesome." Started taking some chemistry and and merged those at a time when biochemistry was like not a thing, right? So at that time, it was like, "What are you doing?" Like merging these things. Now it's its own, right? Eventually, it becomes its own super specialty. But at the time, it was like this bold hybrid, and that gave him all this power. Um, and he he invented this technique that revolutionized biology. And then when he was in his mid-50s, he liked learning new domains. He took a sabbatical to go a full two floors away um, from his own lab to learn how to work with DNA. Um, and then six years later, published a paper for which he then won the Nobel Prize in the discipline. And, and when he won it, he eventually won it as a geneticist, which he was learning on his sabbatical when he was 54, I mm. think, basically. Um, and his advice was, he he liked that sort of bringing together of things. He was saying, you know, maybe... I'm not I'm not all the way at the cutting edge on any of these single things, but take take your problem and and learn new skills to apply to it, or take your skills and just take it to another problem that hasn't had those skills. And so he would advise his own students, like, do not try to be a clone of me or your thesis advisor. Like that you can be a role model in other ways, but don't try to be a clone of that. And that, that's what I, I saw at least in sports writing was everyone was lining up to to be the clone. And that's a hard way to compete, in my opinion. Yeah, because then there's a very already established hierarchy 
with millions of people perhaps competing to be the top of that hierarchy. Yeah. And you just can't, that's really where 10,000 hours might come in. Like where you need to be from the age of three on memorizing all sorts of sports statistics and, you know, r starting writing about sports from an early age. And then, okay, now that that's the established hierarchy. And now I'm going to eventually be at the top. So that guy, Oliver, you mentioned, he created his own field, yeah. you know, based on the com combining these two interests and boom, of course he's going to be the best at it. Van Gogh created his own area of art. Like if you look at one of his paintings, you know, that's his, cause that's, he's, that's, that's his own personal style almost. Yeah, I mean, as his Pulitzer Prize winning biographer said, he had to reinvent the rules in order to succeed. And so that's what he did. I wonder if that's the key to success. If So so, so let's put this into almost like a formula. Um, let's say you're 50 or you're 30 or you're you're too old to start to, to be a prodigy where, uh, you know, a prodigy maybe has different ways of building their their brain and 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 different uses for you know is, is better able to do 10,000 hour rule type domains um so let's say you're 30 40 50 you want to reinvent yourself it seems like again taking a bunch of interests what you've you know what you've learned from all of them what's the intersection of that like this guy Oliver took medicine and chemistry and combined them for biochemistry and then taking the domain you want to succeed in and sort of finding your own twist on the entire domain. Like you, let's just argue for a second. You created the area of scientific sports writing. Now I'm sure there's other scientific sports writers, but you of course. probably very few. And you, you basically sort of create or participate in this brand new domain that doesn't have millions of people competing to be on that hierarchy. And Van Gogh created his own area. Uh, so I've had Coolio, the rapper on the podcast. And so he was breaking down for me. Okay. In 1984, this is what rappers were like in 1986. This is what rappers were like in 1989. This is what rappers were like. And then in 1993, I decided I was going to add singing. So more kind of melodic harmony to rapping. So he kind of created his own area of an, that in an area that was already extremely popular. The next year gangsters paradise came out and was the number one song of the year. So this, yeah. that seems like a formula for success. I, I know. I mean, yeah, I think you're, you're better at doing the formulas than I did. So that, that was more eloquent than I would have put it, I think. But, but yeah, no, I, I love that. You just, you talking about Coolio like that reminded me of one of my, my favorite studies called Superman or the Fantastic Four that was of comic book creators. I particularly liked it because unlike a lot of business studies, it didn't suffer from survivor bias because the researchers could follow the value of comics up or down. And, and again, not that monetary value is the only thing, but but it could track a whole industry and see who was most likely to produce blockbusters. And all of the hypotheses they had to their credit, they listed were mostly wrong, that it would be the publisher's resources, amount of experience, and number of repetitions. But that's like, because they were coming from analyzing industrial tasks in a kind environment, and those were all wrong. And it turned out it was the number of different genres that the creator had worked in that predicted their likelihood of making a breakthrough. And at, at a certain level, you could recreate a, a, a genre-diverse individual with a team but once you got past four genres, an individual with more than four genres of experience could not be recreated anymore by Platoon in a team. So there's some integration that an individual can do as that genre experience goes up that, that you can't necessarily do in a team. And I think that's the kind of thing, you know, that Coolio might be doing. He's doing this, like, integration of, of cross-genre forms that, that is difficult to recreate in any other way. And then, uh, you know, I wonder... Uh, the role of experimentation. So let's say you, you love a certain domain, um, and you want to get good at it quickly. You could say to yourself, okay, I'm going to take all these things I'm interested in. I, I, you could say, 
A, I don't have the 10,000 hours or the time. And, but I do have a, a lot of experiences that are kind of relatively similar. Here's how I can make the connection. So medicine and chemistry, there's some connection. There's, there's some intersection there, mm-hmm. uh, or science and sports writing. There's, there's some connection, but it seems like another thing you have to do. And, and you mentioned this a little in the book, but I'm curious your thoughts on this. What's, what's the role of trying different experiments, uh, to get better. So, so I'll just give you an example. When I was and, and still am trying to get better at something like totally new for me, like stand-up comedy, I'll try experiments. Like I'll go on a subway car and try to do stand-up comedy on the subway car. So I'll give myself a challenge that probably no one has, has done or does just to sort of skip, skip hours. That's the way I thought of it in my head, but maybe there's something else going on. But I thought I was like skipping hours by giving myself a challenge that no other comedian doing the traditional route would have done. No, I, I think here's, I think for sure, like you're doing the the breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. Like you want to do something new, right? And so you're going mm-hmm. out and, and causing this broad training. And and this is actually an area where I think um, some of the things I talk about and some of the things Anders talks about actually merge a little bit. Um, because uh, let's say like speed, <laughs> when I was writing sports gene, I was reading a bunch of speed typing literature, not, not the most scintillating stuff, but... Um, all of us, we get pretty good at typing and then we settle in at a good enough speed and we can get like twice as fast as whatever speed we settled at. But to require to do it, you have to like take a metronome, tick it up a little faster, follow that speed no matter how many mistakes you make and just go at that speed. And then you tick it up a little bit more and a little bit more and you can get like twice as fast. But it seems like our inclination with skills, if we do the same thing over and over, is to settle at like competent but not great. And the way that you get out of those ruts is basically to like, totally vary up the challenge. And, and I think the more wicked the domain, the more you really have to, to vary that challenge. And, and I think absolutely you, you can skip ahead if you're doing that in a good way, because a lot of the things that other people are doing are like going to the gym and lifting the same number of weights at the same time every day. You know, y- you won't slide backward, but you're not going to cause change and adaptation either. Right. And, and the other thing I wonder about is, you know, you mentioned this with the scientific research. If I write a paper and I cite sources that all the reviewers know, so I kind of stay very narrow in mm-hmm. the domain. Um, there's, again, some personality stuff going on, like, oh, the reviewers say, he's he's in our tribe. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll bring him along slowly, and eventually he'll rise up, as opposed to this guy who's quoting all sorts of crazy stuff from different domains. I wonder, you also have to have this psychology where you you have to resist being in the tribe. Uh, so let's say you want to be the greatest chemist in the world. Well, you're, you go to grad school and you're surrounded by all chemists and all the professors are chemists. So you want to be like them and, and their professors were chemists. So there's like this very narrow, uh, path and, and tribe, but maybe to skip, there's a lot of pressures from, there's a lot of pressures against going outside the tribe and bringing stuff back in. Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, these the interdisciplinary pr- proposals are systematically docked. So, so you have to have the psychology. Like, how do you get the psychology to say, oh, "I care so much about this. I'm not. I'm going to ignore what the people I've admired for so many years expect from me, and I'm going to do something new." Yeah. No, I, I don't know. The I can only I can only speculate about that, right? And I think one of the problems actually with interdisciplinary research being docked too is women are more likely to do it. So they end up getting systematically like docked in their reviews because they want to do interdisciplinary stuff. But I think it's just people following their interest. I, that's the only, they must feel really strongly this is interesting because they're disincentivized from trying to do it. 
in many ways, right? Those papers, again, end up in less prestigious journals. Um, you have to wait to see their impact. They're harder to get funded. Um, so they must think it's interesting. You know, a, mo- a modern uh, example you bring up is Jordan Peele, who is making these great horror movies mm-hmm. when his entire background was doing, like, comedy sketches. And he, you know, on I think my guess is on both sides, like, probably horror directors probably hated him for having, like, the top-grossing horror movie of the year. And probably comedy people were like, what's he doing? Are they funny horror movies? Like, what's he doing? And he was just saying, basically, you know, having studied both genres, that the beats were roughly the same. Yeah. And he could transfer knowledge from one to the other and rise to the top quickly in this in this other, using, but even better, yeah. using this comedy kind of twist to things. Right. So, I mean, he saw that commonality that it's all about, like, the timing of revealing information. And so he basically skipped all the way to the front of the line with his first movie. Right, and but he didn't say to himself, "Okay, well, the top of the tribe are these three comedy directors, like right. you know, I don't know who they are, Judd Apatow or whoever." And I, I, he he didn't say, "Oh, I need to just follow their path because then I'll be respected among my peers that I've been around for the past twenty years." Right. He was willing to jump to another tribe and take skills from one and bring it to the other and skip the line of that whole tribe. To, to make kind of a new domain in it and rise to the top. Right, and, and I think it's amazing when those things happen because it happens in spite of, of a system that militates against it in every possible way, right? From the advice that people give about what to do to that sort of in-group that, that maybe doesn't want to let someone come up that quickly. And so what that says to me is it's, it's so powerful that we should really diversify our pipeline for... Um, uh, for all endeavors, right? So one of the in in Abby you have to Griffin, diversify your your tribes too. Diversify the tribes too, and so Abby Griffin, a professor who studies serial innovators, people who repeatedly make creative contributions. When I was reading her research, it's like you know this staid language about like what people do, and then and then she sort of steps outside of that at one point and says, "By the way, I'd like to give some advice to HR managers." when you make your job description too narrow, you're going you're gonna to accidentally screen out these serial innovators because they've jumped around disciplines. Um, maybe they have like some resume gaps. They have hobbies that you'll probably see as a diversion. They have a need to learn across domains. They tinker, all this kind of stuff. So her advice was, don't make that description or your development pipeline too narrow or else you're going to screen out these people that we know have the highest potential for contributions because they're coming from places that you can't see, that you're not directly looking at. And so I think if we wanted to really like maximize human potential, we would do, and, and, and some, again, some national sports systems have done this, is they, they broaden their pipeline such that they can get people from a greater diversity of paths, which is a hard thing to systematize and say, this is the exact path we want. So instead you open up and allow more paths. But that's, so that's looking at it from the top down. Like, yeah. okay, I want to hire the serial innovators. So look for people who have um, been able to jump from tribe to tribe to tribe and do modest innovations in each, and that's going to be my best hire. But now, what if I'm bottom up? Like, what if you? Uh, so, so again, you did geology and sports writing, and you've written some books uh, about sports and expertise, and and you you did scientific sports writing. What if now you said, oh, you know, I'm obsessed with um, romances. I want to write a, a great romance novel. Like, how would you approach? starting to jump to the front of the line in romance novels. I mean, when I got stuck with this book, th- this was a book was a real structural challenge for me. I took an online fiction writing course. And taking that, one of the things that happened, some like some of the assignments I had was to you could you had to write an assignment using only dialogue. And then you had to write an assignment using no dialogue whatsoever. 
And after I did that, and you had to do assignments imitating certain voices and things. And after I did the one where you, you had to use no dialogue whatsoever, I went back through my manuscript of this book and was like, holy shit, like I need to strip a ton of quotes. I've been like leaning on quotes in a way that I didn't even realize I was doing because it's become so native to me. And somehow that like knocked me out of that and made me realize I was doing something without even thinking. And I went back and like completely changed the manuscript and, mm. and wrote a lot of things where I was sort of leaning on quotes in, in a basically a lazy way. Um, and so I, I would definitely take like some formal, um, you know, more fiction classes, partly just because I loved it. But I know I have some strengths in organization of information. And that's a really important thing, no matter what you're doing um, in that kind of writing. And that would transfer for sure. So I think I would play to my strength by making one of the complexities of my novel in the structure, as opposed to some of the other aspects, because structure is something I, I already, um, you know, like Jordan Peele with timing of reveal of information is something that I can, I can bring um, that I think people who have only gone in that genre are less likely to, to have had mm. that same way. Mm. And then maybe, I don't know, the sports knowledge too could be a sports romance. Sure. I mean, <laughs> so yeah. It's kind of the obvious thing too. So, or a science romance. Uh, or a sports uh, science romance. Yeah. Then I'll really be on my own ground. Yeah, then then you're going to be the uh, best seller. You can make that category on Amazon. Fifty be Shades of Sports Science, that's right. straight to the top. <laughs> yeah, actually, you can think about it. So some baseball player picks a fan out of the audience. Anyway. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so one last thing about the 10,000-hour rule, because it does, it does seem like we don't want to kind of completely discard that, although there's so many counterexamples and so many different... Like, there's more domains that seem to be largely wicked versus kind. But... It does seem that when someone's young, there's a biological thing that happens when they put in repetition, which is that the, you know, their brain starts transmitting signals among those neurons related to that domain much faster than if you, people start as adults. So, so, and I guess that happens in kind domains, but is that what contributes to the 10,000 hours for young people? Or is there a way around that if you're trying to get good at chess, say, as an older person? I mean, one of the, the actually, again, Fernando Bay said that I know in some study when if people were sort of too rigid in the way they studied chess, he felt like they didn't get as good because they had locked in certain types of play patterns. So even within that, you know, you you want some variety. Um, but it, it's totally bioplausible to me, and, and and was my intuition that you should start early, right? Because you've got this incredible brain plasticity and all these things. So when I was seeing these findings, you know, starting in sports, um, that said you are not the best, that, that are totally incompatible with the start as early as possible. If you want to do X, start in X exactly. They're totally incompatible with that. Um, it just can't fit with that. And, and I think the theme, again, is that it's a question of, are you trying to automate these procedures or are you trying to learn this broader skill of how you match certain types of strategies to certain types of problems? And I think if it's about automating procedures or what in math they call using procedures knowledge as opposed to this making connections knowledge, which is a much broader thing that's a framework instead of these, these myelinated automated processes, then um, it, 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 the way to take advantage of that plastic period is not by doing the same thing over and over. It's by building this breadth that becomes a scaffolding and you can learn the more technical training later on. And then, and then the one last thing I'm curious about is what's the role of charisma in all this? So it doesn't seem at first glance like there is a role, but again, since you're going against various tribes and you're trying to kind of create something new and then let and then have people notice it you've got to be somehow uh i don't know you have to be able to communicate that somehow like 
Claude Shannon, you, you bring up as a small example, but you know, he created the whole study of information theory, but he was a juggler. He had, he had all sorts of, you know, tricks in his bag that he's right. other things that he had studied, but he clearly had this kind of like over the top personality that attracted people to him. Yeah. So I wonder how much of a role that is in, in, in all of this. No, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's, I think it's incredibly important and I, I can only speak to that totally subjectively, but, but you know, I think people have sort of different types of leadership traits that they can wield in that way and that they should be aware of what their, what their strengths are. Um, and, you know, and like Susan Cain's written about it, like how do people use their native personality to, to be a source of, of power instead of a detriment? But like one of the, the inventors, a woman named Jayshree Seth, um, who I write about in Range, what she does, she, she, she's an inventor and she went at 3M and she goes totally outside of her experience even though everyone's telling her like, you're crazy, you know, and but she she just doesn't want to do anymore what she was doing. And so she starts taking this approach because she's not specialized enough to do her own thing, starts like interviewing her colleagues in what she came to call her mosaic building process where she learn, she does her homework about her own colleagues and says, this is one tile for the mosaic. And once she's got a full picture, she goes to them and says, she's integrating other people's work and says, this is the story. And if she does a good job, she finds that they are drawn onto her team. Um, and And so I don't know, I don't know that that was necessarily pure charisma, but it was finding a way to do your homework in a way and create an engaging vision for a number of people that they want to be drawn onto your team. Well, uh, David Epstein, uh, author of Range, by the way, the top quote on on the cover is from Malcolm Gladwell. He says, I loved Range, just like a very <laughs> simple- the, the full quote is really funny. Well, what's the full quote? Oh, wait, okay. For reasons I can't, here's the full quote. For reasons I cannot explain, David Epstein manages to make me thoroughly enjoy the experience of being told that everything I thought about something was wrong. I loved range. Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, Very kind of him. Oh, and Maria Konnikova, Sebastian Junger, Susan Cain. All of our friends. Uh, uh, yeah, and Daniel Pink, all, all, all quotes on the back. Well, congratulations on this. Uh, when did the book come out? Tuesday. Oh, just this past Tuesday? Yep. You, uh, I you, probably you, got it. You're I, just on the VIP list. Uh, or maybe maybe I bought it after Maria sent me the email. Uh, uh, I don't know. She saw, Maria sent me an email like a few months ago. Oh, you yeah, definitely yeah. need to meet this guy. And then, and I was so bogged down with podcasts then, but I probably ordered the book and then got it the day it came out. And then did I started you, reading did it. Did you get it on Tuesday? I tried to send you a copy uh, earlier, like an advanced copy. Whatever, it doesn't matter. I don't know. This is, this is the copy I got. This is not an okay. advanced copy. Okay. It doesn't have the usual advanced stuff on it. I got this the day... It came out, and I figured, oh, I got nothing to do today. I'm going to read this oh, book. Okay. All right. And I didn't know that I knew you, and you know, at least through emails. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the exact thing I've been trying to figure out. So it's such a great book, and then it's great to be able to to talk to you about it. So thanks for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. I mean, to hear you sort of synthesize some of the ideas in in areas and domains that I didn't even write about is hugely instructive for me, and so I really enjoy that. Oh well, let's. Keep in touch and uh, come on again at some point. I'd love to. Excellent. Thanks. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.